Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 256. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show, and actually today's show is such an ecliptic mix of all sorts. First up is we have a song by Fred Heimboff, our very own Fred, who is editor over there on Protecting Project Pulp. I had to think about that. Fred's wrote this song. Abraham Lincoln was an invader from space, wrote it, composed it. He's got it in iTunes and Amazon, and I put a link on there. But he's letting Starship Sofa play this as well, so that's fab. Then we have the new Gaming the Future by Simon Hildebrand. Now, remember I said Simon's going to be doing a game, science fiction, all, you know, like electronic games, computer games, little fact articles. Simon's doing that, and this is the first one up there now. Then we have a promo. Our, I, was going to say, I keep on saying that, you know, anyone that's been on the show is our very own. But Matthew Sanborn Smith has got a story in a new anthology called Walk the Fire. And it, anyone knows, Beware the Hairy Mango. This is Matthew Sanborn Smith's podcast. So if you haven't, I'll put a little link on that. If you haven't subscribed, that, by God, you better. And I think it's getting down to annual now. Fiction Crawler. We'll try and get two a year off Matt. Matt does Fiction Crawler on Starship Sova. But like I say, he's got a new story out and he's, he sent us over this promo to get Woke the Fire. So we'll do have a look out for that and see if we can snap that up. Then we have another fact article. It is Hugo Reviews. Andy Thomaswick comes back again with American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Then it is the main fiction, and it is Source Decay by Charlie Jane Anders. Charlie Jane Anders, if you know, won the Hugo Award this year. So I'll get a little bit in, more into Charlie Jane Anders. Then right at the end, did anyone notice <laughs> last week? We have, uh, right at the end this week, we have Pottery Planet. Yes, by Diane Severson. Didn't I go and play last year's Pottery Planet <laughs> Oh, I'm having to play this. Not having to play this. I just made a mistake last week and somehow I played last year's Port Replanted from the same month. So there you go, Diane, and my apologies. That is today's show, 256. I do hope you will join me. So, first up is our Fred. Abraham Lincoln was an invader from space. Take it away, sir. Abraham Lincoln was an invader from space. Abraham Lincoln did not belong to our race. 
belonged to a race. Abraham Lincoln was an invader from space. Not die if he tried. Theodore Roosevelt kissed his immortal bride. Kissed his immortal bride. Theodore Roosevelt could not die if he tried. President Wilson emerged from one of the pods. President Wilson brought with him alien gods. From one of the pods, Warren G. Harding could travel backwards in time. Warren G. Harding commanded clocks when to chime. Commanded clocks when to chime. Warren G. Harding could travel backwards in time. Richard M. Nixon, a robot wearing a mask. Richard M. Nixon drank engine oil from a flask. Theodore Roosevelt kissed his immortal bride. Theodore Roosevelt could not 
There you go, Fred. Like I say, I put a link on to you know if you want to go and download nine nine you know nine nine pence nine nine cents. Well, you know, bargain. So next up is Gaming the Future number one by Simon Hildebrand. Like I say, a brand new fact article there coming every month from Simon, all to do with games. Simon. Hi, my name's Simon Hildebrand, and welcome to Gaming the Future. I'm here to talk to you about the curious intersecting worlds of science fiction and games. Games inspired by great science fiction, games that are great science fiction, even the games that appear in great science fiction. I'm hoping to explore them all. So buckle up, because our first target is a doozy. Portal. In dangerous testing environments, the Enrichment Center promises to always provide useful advice. For instance, the floor here will kill you. Try to avoid it. That's GLaDOS, antagonist from Valve Software's award-winning first-person puzzle game, Portal. Today I'd like to give you an introduction to a game that brought together science fiction and gaming in one incredibly fun package, spawned an intensely anticipated sequel, and introduced a generation to the phrase... The cake is a lie. The Portal concept started as a senior project at the DigiPen Video Game College. Back then it was called Narbacular Drop, and the concept was pretty simple. A puzzle game where the player carries a tool that can stick portals to the walls, floor and ceiling. The player can see and move through these portals, allowing them to, for instance, step into a portal on one side of a room and immediately step out of a reciprocating portal on the far side of the room. This is the deceptively simple core mechanic behind all of the puzzles in Portal, with the important addition that, like the real world, momentum is conserved, so players quickly learn that strategically placed portals can turn a long vertical fall into an exhilarating horizontal plunge over a room full of obstacles to victory, and matching sets of portals on floor and ceiling can result in a never-ending loop as the player accelerates hilariously towards terminal velocity. The name Narbacular Drop, incidentally, was a made-up word chosen purely to make the game easier to Google. While Narbacular Drop was short and not particularly polished, it captured imaginations at Valve Software. Famous for the innovative gameplay and storytelling of the Half-Life series, the creative team at Valve saw tremendous potential in the simple, novel game mechanic, and also in the precocious students behind it. So, after a successful demonstration at Valve's offices, company president Gabe Newell immediately offered jobs to the whole team. At this point, Portal started evolving into the game we see today. The original fantasy theme was discarded, replaced by a new high-tech setting, drawing visual inspiration from sources like Michael Bay's film The Island, and a new story began to take shape, with a narrative connecting it to Valve's other project of the time, Half-Life 2. The game is set in the Aperture Laboratories Enrichment Centre, an elaborate facility which the company uses to test various new product designs. One such product is the Aperture Science handheld portal device, and Portal's story revolves around the premise that our protagonist is trapped in the facility by GLaDOS, the AI we met in the introduction, and is forced to test this product by using it to complete various puzzles. At first glance, the environment of Portal isn't obviously sci-fi, The limited budget and minimalist game design of Portal 1 resulted in an aesthetic best described as laboratory cleanroom, 
And while in the second game we get to explore older, dirtier environments that evoke comparisons to 50s missile bunkers and government warehouses, there's no aliens or starships here. In fact, apart from the portal gun itself, the most sci-fi thing about the game is most definitely GLaDOS herself. A malevolent AI antagonist with the creepy omniscience of 2001's HAL and the compassion of Skynet. While many sci-fi writers have experimented with the idea of rogue AIs, GLaDOS is a unique and richly drawn character, combining black humour with a seemingly pathological desire for one thing, testing. Interestingly, she's a great example of an unreliable narrator, willing to lie to the player at the slightest provocation to get her way. Voiced exquisitely by Alan McLean, opera singer and voice talent staple of several Valve games, GLaDOS's character takes the portal games from being simple puzzlers and draws them into the domain of funny and thought-provoking fiction. Unreliability aside, GLaDOS is one of two sources of backstory available in Portal. Beyond the occasional hint she drops about the state of the outside world, the player is otherwise left to scour hidden corners of the levels for hints and clues, slowly putting the pieces together on what, by the end of the second game, is an implied post-apocalyptic world, tentatively linked to the events of Valve's flagship game series, Half-Life. But while the story never distracts from the game itself, Valve's focus is, first and foremost, on creating a polished and satisfying playing experience, there are many interesting themes just under the surface for those who take the time to look. GLaDOS is an AI gone mad after being left alone for an indeterminate amount of time, and seems a little bit like the broomstick of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, an automaton still repetitively going through the motions, long after those motions have lost meaning. Aperture Laboratories, on the other hand, and, in the sequel, its founder, Cave Johnson, embodies what many people perceive as the amorality and even recklessness of scientists, demented children tinkering with the building blocks of the universe purely for curiosity's sake. Extended out into comics and supported by an emotive soundtrack, it's a blackly comic, almost Kafka-esque story of fighting for survival where no one will even tell you the rules. To conclude, then, the Portal games come highly recommended. Valve have a reputation for putting story on an equal footing with other aspects of their games, and while they save the truly grand narratives for those Half-Life titles, Portal 1 and 2 hold a quirky and thought-provoking charm all of their own. Jump on Steam or your console of choice and grab them today. You'll be glad you did. Before I go, I'd like to share some interesting connections I dug up while researching this article. In the lead-up to the release of Portal 2, Valve commissioned a short promotional comic to be illustrated by staff artists Michael Avon Oming and Andrea Wickland. The comic expands on the story of the background character from the first game called Ratman and was penned by none other than Ted Kosmatko frequent contributor to the sofa. See episodes 206, 96, 64, and 53. Ted wrote the story after consulting with Valve's staff writers, including Mark Laidlaw, another sofa contributor. Check out Flight Risk in episode 81. Small world, huh? Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some serious space opera when I explore sci-fi strategy classic, Homeworld. Our music is by Cheap Shot from the album Streets of Bass, used with permission. Links to that and everything else I've mentioned in the show notes.
Simon, thank you so much. And Simon dropped me this note, you know, a while ago, and it's it's been like we say we've been kind of working on this and brewing on this idea for a while, and then just about two weeks ago, I've had a, a couple of emails saying, Tony, I would I'd be interested in doing a fact article on game and you know game, and then it's like it's it's like buses, you know, they all come along at once. <laughs> Next up is a little promo, like I say, from Matthew Sanborn-Smith. He's got a story in, Walk the Fire. The Flames. Any who step through may stride across the world and beyond. A precious, precious few. The ferryman can guide you true through any flame and emerge from a crossing as young and strong as when first the flame kissed them. Fleets travel space for lifetimes, reach new worlds, challenge the black between galaxies, all thanks to the ferryman. But is there a price hidden in the ferryman's fire? A science fiction anthology featuring Matthew Sanborn Smith, J. Daniel Sawyer, Ed Robertson, Patrick McLean, Nathan Lowell, Brand Gamblin, Jason Andrew Bond, Jake Bible, and John Miro. Learn more at servingworlds.com. Walk the fire. The universe awaits. May the ferryman take you. Did you notice the, the voiceover gentleman there? Yes, Dave Robertson. That was Dave from Protecting Project Pulp as well. So that's the host. You know, don't, don't forget about uh, District of Wonders, the other fantastic shows out there. So next up, we have the Hugo Reviews, Andy Thomaswick. Andy, which one, sir? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hugo Review. This time, I'll be covering American Gods by Neil Gaiman, the winner for 2002. This book was one of my favorite premises of any of the Hugo Awards that I've read so far, and one that would make the world a far more interesting place if it was true. The premise is that all of the gods that have ever been believed in actually take a physical form, and their strength is derived from the amount of belief in them. But this power is not only applicable to the mythological gods that are taught in the world culture classes in middle school, it also applies to anything whose powers people believe in. The internet, television, and marketing all take on physical manifestations in the world described here. I personally think this is an ingenious idea and had not heard of it before I read this book. I'm told that the movie Elf had a similar concept, but this book was released before that. Thrown into this unique world is the main character, Shadow, who is released from prison early due to the death of his wife, and is recruited as a bodyguard to the mysterious Mr. Wednesday, on a quest to have the old gods join the battle against the upstart new gods. In this case, the old gods are represented by at least one from every major religion that has ever existed, with the notable accents of both Greek and Christianity. The new gods are the spawns of the modern consumer culture that has been extensively commented on in American literature over the past decades, though it is notable that Gaiman didn't make these characters invincible, showing that he doesn't think they have completely taken over the United States culture yet. To tie into the belief-based theme, another one of the concepts that Gaiman introduced that I love is the idea of places of power. Any veteran of the fantasy genre will be familiar with the concept. Essentially, a place of power is a special location that holds some sort of spiritual or religious meaning to a specific group of people. In Gaiman's world, the places of power are the side-of-the-road tourist traps that are so famous in America. For those of you that have had the opportunity to drive down I-95 on the East Coast, 
you might have seen the perfect example of a place of power in American gods. Though it's not actually used in the book, south of the border, on the border of North and South Carolina, is the typical American place of power. There is nothing to make this location special other than some man-made attractions that could have been placed anywhere on any continent, but for some reason chose this specific area to manifest themselves. I'll admit that after reading this book, I wanted to make more pit stops at these types of attractions, and now every time I see one, I think back to this concept. The story takes Shadow and Mr. Wednesday to many of these places of power, but more importantly, it serves as a way for Gaiman to slyly introduce characters and leave the reader guessing as to what analog it serves. Some are more obvious than others. For example, the story explains rather plainly who Mr. Wednesday actually is. However, the true identity of other minor characters can send the reader to Google multiple times and can spark a profound interest in old mythologies themselves. While the story serves this purpose well, it is not particularly memorable, with some legitimate criticism leveled at it as being scene after scene that is not well tied together or cohesive. However, it is interesting enough to keep the pages turning for the length of the book. I should take a step back here to mention the other criticism commonly leveled at this book. It is rather dark and gory. In fact, as a personal anecdote, I lent my copy to a female friend of mine a few years ago. As far as I know, she never read past the first chapter, where there is a rather graphic sex scene that might not be appropriate for some younger readers. In fact, take the kid-friendliness that the Graveyard book, Gaiman's other Hugo Award winner, embodies, invert it, and you get about the appropriate age level for American Gods. There are other grotesque instances strewn throughout the book, encounters with Shadow's wife specifically come to mind. But don't take that to mean this book falls into the horror genre and should be ignored by anyone who's afraid of mice. Most offensive parts play only a minor role in the progression of the story and should not be able to dissuade a normal reader. The offensiveness only matches the subject material. American Gods looks at the underbelly of American culture. How we hold such modern-day icons in such reverential esteem is well portrayed here, and the portrayal is not always pretty. Gaming catches the undercurrent of sex, greed-based capitalism, and self-interest that permeates American pop culture. While a relative newcomer to the country, his view of the states will be familiar to anyone who has lived here their whole lives, and serves as a useful prism, as so much of science fiction does. Gaiman builds on his particular prism masterfully, and uses the same sort of teasing writing that is evident in the Graveyard Book, and, assumedly, his other writings. Gaiman's writing style is unique, but not so outlandish as to seem artsy. There are literally pantheons of characters that parade in and out of American gods, which makes the character end of the writing spectrum difficult for this particular novel. However, the main characters are established well enough to prove the Gaiman is capable of that sort of development. Combining a bit of mystery with interesting banter, especially between Wednesday and Shadow, and some interesting side stories makes American gods a worthy winner of the award. That's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time, I'll be covering Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling, the winner for 2001. So please keep reading, and don't trust any money you receive from leprechauns. There you go. I keep mentioning this every time when Andy drops this, you know, the fact article over. It's it's getting more interesting there now because you know they're kind of slipping from your mind, and it's it's nice to go back and have a little. If you haven't read any of these Hugo Awards that Andy's now dipping into, you know, it's a great little chance to to just kind of brush up. Andy, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it's called Source Decay by Charlie Jane Anders. 
Now, Charlie is the editor, one of the editors over there at io9, but she also is, you know, a kind of a writer that's been going. Well, our first short story, let's see, kicked off in 2000, Infinite Offspring. And our last story, which is Mooney and Finn's Somnitrope, with 2011, came out in there, and this is a right mouthful of an anthology, the Thackeray T. Lampstead Cabinet of Curiosities, Exhibits, Oddities, Images and Stories from Top Authors and Artists, edited by Anne Vandermeer. The story that we're about here, Saucy Key, came out in 2011 and was published in Strange Horizons, the January 2011 edition. And, you know, I, I tried my hardest, to be quite honest, to try and get and play six months, three days from Char- Charlie Jane and as, and, you know, Charlie was keen as out to let were play it. But, you know, editors over there, at the, wherever it got published, just would, they wanted to keep it to themselves, which you, I suppose you can understand, so we weren't allowed to get that one played on the show. But it went and ended up winning the Hugo Award. And it's lovely because I think... You can just tell that, you know, Charlie's kind of turned into like a cracking writer and like I say, hitting the Hugo with this story as well at six, six months, three days. It's only going to get better for Charlie and I'm so excited because I just had my, now when, you know, and I kind of sometimes, I bet and I say, you know, I put my house on that one and that one, I, I just knew, you know, it was going to be a winner that six months, three days. So fantastic. Like I say, we have Source Decay, and it is narrated by Logan Warpen. And I'm sure Logan went through the the the, <laughs> the narrator's workshop, because I've tried to find a little bio for Logan. I thought, I haven't got one. But then his name kind of, for some reason, popped up on the, the you know, people that's kind of been through the, the narrator's workshop that I run as well. So there you go. Logan, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Source Decay. By Charlie Jane Anders. Jeremy should have known there was something going on with Tara when she tried so hard to avoid looking at him that she spilled mochaccino on his pants. She was wearing her shiny silver superstar sweatshirt, which she wore only when she thought she could get on television, and the leggings the topless American apparel girl wore on the billboard. The whole time while they were meeting for coffee, Jeremy tried to talk about his new research project on bird migration and blonde, freckled Tara kept making faces and asking loaded questions about what Jeremy was really doing with his afternoons. Where were those birds really flying to? Did those birds have a secret destination? By the time he'd finished his ginseng latte, Jeremy had reached a decision. He was going to have to phase out the with-benefits portion of his friends-with-benefits relationship with Tara. The trickiest part was how to let Tara know that her benefits had expired. It's not something Hallmark makes a card for, and Jeremy really did want to stay friends with her. This was the sort of ticklish social situation that Jeremy would usually ask his girlfriend Roberta about. But Roberta did not technically know about Tara's benefits. Well, she didn't know at all, in fact, so Jeremy was going to have to settle for withholding benefits from Tara until she figured it out on her own. Jeremy pretended in his own head that he'd talked this out with Roberta, and she'd given him good advice. Since he couldn't come out and thank Roberta for the advice she'd only given him in his mind, he settled for showing more affection than usual, kissing her wide, pale face once under each eye on the balcony of their second-floor apartment, smoothing out her red-highlighted black hair with both hands. After he let go of her head, he noticed a man across the street pointing a video camera in their general direction, which was weird. And then Tara called up Jeremy in the middle of dinner and wanted him to say he still cared about her. 
Her voice sounded stagey, as if this was one of her spoken word performances. For some values of care, Jeremy really did care about her, so he said yes. The next day, on his way to work, Jeremy noticed a car, three cars behind his, and once or twice he saw the previous day's cameraman standing in the parking lot near his work observing him. Jeremy took Roberta to dinner at a nice restaurant, with outdoor seating and heat lamps, and bought her a bottle of fizzy wine the color of blood and water. He still wanted to thank her for the advice she hadn't given him, and he sort of felt guilty for providing those benefits to Tara in the first place, although he doubted Roberta would mind, since Roberta had long since discontinued her own benefits with Jeremy. They were just toasting with fancy wine when the man with the camera came running over to their table. The cameraman wore a parka, and he had a whole crew and a middle-aged man in a cheap suit with him. And Tara was running behind them, crying and smiling. She wore her getting-on-television jumper again. "'How could you?' Tara screamed when they reached their table. "'How could you run around with her in public?' "'And she's my best friend!' Roberta was not Tara's best friend, although they had taken a pottery class together years ago. The man in the cheap suit strode up to their table. "'I'm George Giordano from the TV show Infidelity Squad. "'How do you feel about the fact that you're ruining this lovely lady's life? "'Does your conscience ever bother you?' "'He turned to Roberta. "'You know that Tara is Jeremy's girlfriend. "'They're planning their wedding. "'How can you do this to your best friend? "'Don't you feel you owe her an apology?' What makes you think you can play games with her emotions like this? Yeah, Tara shrieked, playing games with my emotions. Jeremy and Roberta got up and walked away from the restaurant without paying their bill, but George Giordano and Tara followed them the whole way back to their car. Jeremy almost tried to explain that he wasn't cheating on Tara with Roberta. In fact, it was the other way around, but he decided that would probably make things worse. And in any case... George and the camera crew were mostly interested in talking to Roberta because they liked the sleeping-with-her-best-friend's-guy angle. By the time that episode of Infidelity Squad aired, Jeremy and Tara had moved in together, and Roberta was no longer talking to either of them. Nobody had ever fussed over Jeremy the way Tara had, on television no less, and he decided he liked having her fight for his love. It made him feel like a prize. Tara and Jeremy sat on their new sofa, holding hands, watching the detective watching Jeremy, whose carefully tussled sandy hair looked great in both regular and infragreen video. Later, Tara and Jeremy appeared on a follow-up episode of Infidelity Squad together, talking about how they'd patched up their relationship. 500 years later, Zalathi Bascott watched the original Tara and Jeremy episode of Infidelity Squad for the 10th or 11th time, chewing her left middle thumb. She straddled her U-chair and leaned over the photon hole as the Infidelity Squad logo whirled into focus. An announcer said, Infidelity Squad is a tribute to the faithful and scourge to the duplicitous. If you suspect your loved one is sowing his seeds in a foreign orchard, call our toll-free number and Infidelity Squad's licensed investigators will establish the truth. In the episode showing on the photon hole, Tara talks about her fiancé, Jeremy, who seems to be slipping away. And then the Infidelity Squad is on the case. Investigators start following Jeremy, a.k.a. The Suspect, around and observing that he is seen in the company of Roberta, a.k.a. The Companion. They are observed, consuming libations together. Watching the surveillance footage on camera, Tara is horrified and elated. Zalathi paused the playback and pressed all six of her thumbs together. 
Okay, sure, it's compelling stuff, granted, but it's an age-old story, one that we already have in multiple other formats. There are plays, there are poems, it's even in the Bible and other sacred texts, the story of the unfaithful husband. That fragment of I Love Lucy, on the other hand, her lipless mouth knitted shut. Her boss, Zorro Hay, pointed at the look of misery and excitement on Tara's face. But Tara and the Infidelity Squad, it's just so vivid, he said. I mean, sure, it's a classic story. It's as old as monogamy. But don't think about the story. Think about the format. This is the almost quintessentially television piece of television you could find. If we're looking for something to represent the format, this is perfect. It's an artifact of the relatively new technology of portable video recording and the obsession with surveillance. For the first time ever, humans could expose their personal lives in a mass medium. There's nothing between us and what Tara is feeling. It's completely truthful, totally immediate, and it still speaks to us hundreds of years later. Zalafi spread out the video nubs on her countertop once again. These were the choices. That episode of Infidelity Squad, about 20 minutes of I Love Lucy, two-thirds of a Star Trek Voyager episode, an entire Mad About You, a couple of game shows, a political talk show from 2147, an interactive murder mystery from the 2160s, and a few collections of unrelated clips. She would have pushed for the Star Trek, except it cut out just as Captain Janeway was about to make a pivotal decision. I would argue that the romantic comedy is the crucial distinction of television, Zalathi said, after pondering a moment longer. It existed before television, sure, but not in the form of a romance about a couple's ongoing relationship, one that develops week after week. It's amazingly metatextual. It's a television show about a woman who wants to get on television. How can that not be the most emblematic representation of the medium? Lucy is great, and I'll be sad to lose her, Zorro nodded, then shook his head, his hair responding to the extra kinetic energy by glowing a gentle mauve. But really, does Lucy love Ricky as much as Tara loves Jeremy? Plus, Lucy spies on Ricky, I will grant that, but she doesn't place Ricky under round-the-clock video surveillance. Tara is the ultimate television hero. We'll be celebrating her forever. Zalathi said nothing after that. Zora was the boss, after all. She almost pointed out that the whole cheating motif felt weirdly retrograde, since society was on the verge of solving the monogamy issue any day now, using limbic encryption and isomorphic hormones. But there was no point in arguing with Zora once he'd made a decision— so she slunk back to her bedchamber on the orbital sloop and stared out at the nearest space elevator stretching down to Earth's crimson surface below until she dozed off in her slammock. And that's how the Tara episode of Infidelity Squad came to be the last remaining piece of television, preserved for future generations in the Museum of All Media orbiting the equator. Twenty years later, a third of the girls and a tenth of the boys, born in one particular year, were named Tara. The Zenratha Megadrama Conglomerate Partnership commissioned a 72-hour elevator installation about the Tara and Jeremy saga, with popular elevator starlet Mitzi Glorious playing Tara. 
Sure, you'd only have time to watch 20 or so hours during each elevator ride, but since most people spent half their lives in the space elevators, going on salvage or reclamation missions down to Earth, you'd probably get to see the whole thing within a couple of weeks. The miniseries invented many details about the childhoods and families of the three main characters and fleshed out the supporting cast, including the waiter who'd served Roberta and Jeremy that fateful bottle of pink fizz. Licensing and franchising requirements meant that different elevators had different versions. If you rode the Africa Express, you'd see a version where Roberta turned out to be an android who'd instilled bootleg limbic code on Jeremy to try to win him away from the faithful Tara. If you took the elevator down to Antarctica, you saw a version where Tara and Roberta both killed themselves simultaneously to prove they each loved Jeremy more. And the Samarkand version... Tara injected herself and Jeremy with isomorphic hormones, and they both died of endocrine failure. Frequently, George Giordano was a ghost who haunted the adulteress. 700 years after Tara first formed the Infidelity Squad hotline, her episode of the show had gone through a dozen different digital formats, including DVD, Photon Hole, Brain Overlay, Full Haptic, Frosty Floss, and Retro Retina TM. The Museum of All Media closed for repairs, then fell out of orbit altogether in what turned out to be an insurance scam. The Infidelity Squad episode didn't quite make the transition to the next wave video format, and a couple of decades later, someone noticed it no longer existed. People still had a 30-second clip of Tara saying, Playing games with my emotions! Included as part of a longer feature about romance throughout the ages, along with a few clips of Desperately Seeking Susan and Oh No You Didn't 4, the only two romance movies still extant. Nobody was interested in watching the actual Tara, Jeremy, Roberta episode by then anyway. The 72-hour miniseries had been remade as a fully immersive life syllabus in which you could spend hours, or days, or weeks, living as Tara, Jeremy, or Robert, with all their life memories and kinesthetic senses implanted into you. People frequently forgot their real names and identities after a few days as Tara, or as Roberta the raven-haired temptress who'd gained her own cult following. By now, the Earth's surface was habitable once again, with only a few hundred modifications to your respiratory system, eyes, and skin required. For a few years, the island once known as Cuba was converted into a Tara vs. Roberta theme park with Pink Fizz fountains. Nobody knew what the actual Pink Fizz had tasted like, so this stuff was grapefruitish, laced with a neurotoxin akin to raw opium. There were no longer grapes, or grapefruits for that matter, by now. Every hour, on the hour, giant robot versions of Tara and Robata battled around a Jeremy-shaped water spout. The story of Tara and Jeremy became a super popular meta-poem a poem with elements of opera, video games, Nero Bollywood, and Vibroblog included, called Playing Games. In this version, Tara was an ortho who refused to get all the filters and skin upgrades required to live on Earth. Appendage-wise, Tara had only three hands, two legs, and one prehensile tail. Roberta, meanwhile, was fully upgraded with seven modular limb sockets, the full Earth survival suite, and a few extrasensory organs, including the one which lets you smell Higgs bosons, which many people believed made you a nymphomaniac. Jeremy was an ortho too, but life down on Earth appealed to him. 
All those wide open spaces, all those weather systems, all that constant gravity, as much water as you wanted, you could bathe in water and tons of old stuff everywhere. And there was plenty of work to do if you didn't mind getting down in the dirt and digging for scrap. The air was still too corrosive for the really good kinds of digging machines, which tended to break down too quickly. And that was good news for unskilled humans with a good work ethic. It was the opposite of the lunar and Martian biospheres, which had limited space and carefully restricted immigration to a few highly skilled people. That slut Roberta kept sending Jeremy twallops of herself, running around a field of rocks, glimmering in the sunlight. Roberta spun around and around, her long dark hair streaming behind her, catching the purple-green glow from the mountains and OAK trees. The intelligent agents, trying to neutralize her brain, bathed her face in unspeakable fluorescent loveliness. This particular day, she had tentacles in all seven of her modular limb sockets, and three of the tentacles ended in human feet. She dangled those feet, with their painted toenails and toe rings, in a stream, and leaned back with lips parted. One tentacle brushed her face and pushed back her hair. Watching this, Jerry felt his serotonin firewalls crumble. Jeremy told Tara he was leaving on a supply mission, but instead he sneaked down to Earth and Roberta took him dancing in a geodesic sex dome where he could safely ditch his survival gear and get swept up in her flurry of legs. She buried her face in his neck and whispered this whole world could be his if he'd just convert. The very next day, Jeremy stood in line at an upgrade center. His gloved hand clutched in Roberta's double-jointed pseudopod waiting to sign up. There were half a dozen cute girls with various configurations, including multiple heads, holding lays which were prepared to drape over Jeremy's neck once he'd officially converted. There really was a labor shortage down there. Jeremy was having doubts about giving up pure, honest humanity. Of course. But he kept imagining running around in the open with Roberta, or even flying, wrapped up in her embrace, since she had enough sockets to have both wings and tentacles. Just as Jeremy reached the sign-up window and was getting ready to impress his hands to the upgrade agreement, a swarm of intelligent agents came down from the air and formed into the massive, angry face of George Giordano. Stop! The floating head shouted. We are the intelligent agents of love! You could gain the whole earth for your playground, but if you lose your true love, you'll never get it back. Jeremy, how can you treat the faithful, loving Tara this way? Roberta sprang forward on the four ballerina legs she'd rented for the occasion and told the floating head of George Giordano to be on his way. She and Jeremy belonged together, and he belonged on earth, and that was all there was to it. If Tara wants him back, she'll have to come down here and get upgraded herself. He's never going back to Orbital 237. Harlot! The head of George Giordano grew three times in regular size and got redder. The eyes, made up of millions of glinting silver and black agents, got bigger and buggier. The mouth opened wider and wider until it seemed about to swallow Roberta up. Go ahead and try, Roberta laughed. I have 27 different kinds of protection against intelligent agents, including anti-neuralizing firewalls and... Her boast was choked off as the giant mouth of George Giordano opened even wider and she disappeared inside his glaring face.
While the intelligent agents disassembled Roberta, George Giordano looked at Jeremy, and by extension the reader-viewer, and explained he was no mere swarm of agents. He was the utter manifestation of true love, and true love is patient and kind, unless you commit an unforgivable falsehood, in which moment true love becomes a force for vengeance and purification that no firewall can hinder. This swarm of unstoppably deadly agents was dedicated to those who kept their promises in love and a scourge to those who lay in a stranger's borrowed sleep net. For each stolen moment of righteousness of the swarm of love grew ever more potent. The speech went on for a good 15 or 20 minutes, but this was the gist. The meta-poem was ultra-popular in the orbital stations and ultra-sloops, but it didn't make it down to Earth. At first, anyway. And then one day, a senior fertility architect from Earth, Winston's meter camp, flew up to the big equatorial grain hub on a trade crusade. Resplendent with his polarized feathers, which rippled as they repelled each other over and over, and slender legs attached to a dozen micro-limb sockets each, Metercamp ignored the stares of the orthos hunched over their atmo-gluten sandwiches and hebenogs. He was all set to spend his entire sore germ in this orbiting slum, where they grew half the food consumed on Earth, avoiding any cultural or emotional contamination. And then he spotted a holodome full of images of an unmistakably converted woman waving a variety of limbs at an entranced orthoman. This ought to be good, Meterkamp muttered. He made a space for himself in the crowd with his wings, and soon he was so absorbed in watching this retelling of the classic tale of Tara and Roberta, he almost missed his crucial grain supply meeting. For the rest of his stay on the hub, Winston's meter camp could feel the orthos watching him, their curiosity, their loathing, their desire, as if he, personally, had seduced them or their loved ones with his terrible resplendence. How dare he turn an adaptation for survival into a thing of beauty? Winston's kept forgetting words in the middle of sentences. He was not oversensitive or especially passionate, but he felt a strange heat gather in his atavistic glands. Ten days later, back on Earth, Winston's still brooded. He nearly sat on someone's prehensile tail tongue during a meeting of the ruling oligopathy. He couldn't even hear the debates. All he could do was brood. Until... The need to speak up felt like a sunburn a few skin layers down. The urge to voice his feelings overcame Winston's in the middle of a plenary session about reliquifying the oceans, and he found himself standing up. They hate us! The orthos, I mean! They think we're all Robertas! They have this... this meta-poem based on the old legend! He explained what he'd seen in fragments, and his voice cracked with shame. The whole oligopathy stopped its discussions and listened to Winston's Metercamp, even after his speech reached the 45-minute mark. At some point, Winston's realized that they were expecting him to offer something besides outrage. They wanted a plan, an idea. They wanted leadership. We need to do more than just respect ourselves, Winston said, groping for the next thought. We tried self-respect, and it wasn't enough. We need a new story to replace the old one. They want us to be Roberta? We'll be Roberta. But we'll be our own Roberta. We'll make her the hero she always deserved to be. 
Five years later, Winston's meter camp was sworn in as the first ever global executor of Earth. Enough Earth dwellers had seen the famous meta poem by now, albeit via shitty bootlegs, that it was accepted as a major planetary insult. If anyone questioned Winston's food allocations policies, he'd find a way to change the subject to Roberta. Nobody wanted to be accused of softness on the Roberta Terra issue. Winston stuck to wearing sumptuous cloaks of forty denier algae over his panoply of limbs. We will not be despised, Winston's meter camp said at his inauguration, which was timed to coincide with the global celebration of Roberta's thousandth birthday, observed. People staged psy operas about Roberta's misunderstood passion, created life-size living Roberta statues out of metacoral, and delivered lengthy, annotated papers about how Roberta deserved Jeremy Moore. As a result, relations with the equatorial grain hub deteriorated and grain shipments had slowed way down, which was one reason those food allocation policies were becoming so important. Flying less material to and from orbit freed up resources for Meter Camp's big project, rehabilitating an old rail gun to aim at the hub. Uh, hiya. Would you mind terribly not pointing that railgun at us? Gogo Fernanda, the Green Hub's senior metaphysical director, asked Winston's in their first summit meeting. It, you know, it uh, makes us all a bit nervous up here. It's a long way down. Gogo settled into her slapback chair and gazed across the drink well at the sheen of Meter Camp's cloak. They were on neutral ground, a sumptuous private suite on the orbit dock. Winston's meter camp still wasn't, by nature, a flamboyant man. That was the reason for the fancy cloaks. But he had learned how to turn his natural discomfort around people into a workable simulacrum of passion. And he felt seethingly uncomfortable facing this smug ortho woman who could still see the strange contours of his body despite his billowing cape. Winston's wanted to say something about bigotry about how much his people had sacrificed to live on Earth to try to rebuild the planet, only to be repaid with loathing. Instead, all he said was, Roberta deserved Jeremy Moore. She loved Jeremy Moore. <laughs> we disagree, Gogo Fernandez said after a moment's consideration. Everyone knows that Tara was Jeremy's true endearing love, and Roberta was a sly harlot. Oh, and we've developed a microwave pulse thingy, which my scientists assure me will cook your atmosphere like a micro-sausage. You wouldn't dare, Winston's meter cap slapped his head on the drink well between them. Deactivate that microwave weapon, or the next time your orbit takes you over Borneo, you'll have a nasty surprise. <laughs> if you fire that railgun, Gogo Fernanda laughed, we'll fire our microwave pulse long before it reaches us. We'll see about that, Winston's meter camp snarled, throwing his cloak around himself. And Roberta? Roberta followed her passion. Roberta lived her life to the full in ways you'll never understand. Nobody had much reason to visit the shattered wreck of Earth for a thousand years after that. But one day, roughly two thousand years after Tara and Roberta had lived, Someone on Mars noticed a glimmering shape on Earth, visible even with a rudimentary telescope. It occupied most of the former Belgian Empire, a crystalline tableau depicting two women locked in eternal struggle. 
Now that they'd inherited the planet at last, the intelligent agents had decided to pay tribute to the most enduring story of the culture that had spawned them. Their two mothers, immortalized in clear microsteel reinforced plastic. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Charlie J. Nandas and Logan. Thank you so much. And I tell you what, I really like about Sourcey Case. One of them stories where it just starts off, you know, just so normal and played, and then just basically just goes and explodes out, out over. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic, Charlie. Thank you so much for letting us have that. So we come to the correct Pori Planet for 2012, Diane. Sorry about that. Welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. Today we are visiting Award Land, the Reisling Award to be specific. If by chance you aren't familiar with the Reisling Award, it is the annual award voted on and given by the members of the Science Fiction and Poetry Association. It's akin to the Nebula Awards, and the winning poems are often included in the Nebula Award Anthology. Every year, the SFPA publishes an anthology of the poems nominated for the award. This year's anthology is absolutely excellent. And thick. I have to admit I had a bit of difficulty reading all of the poems in the allotted time before my votes were due. The way it works is each member is allowed to submit one nominee poem in each of the long and short categories. That means that that poem, of all the poems you've read published in that year, is your absolute favorite. Members then vote, in order of preference, on the three best poems in the anthology. The weighted votes are tallied, and the poem with the most points wins. I'm quite pleased with myself, being quite a newbie on the poetry block, because all of the winning and placing poems this year were also on my shortlist. I had some different absolute favorites, but still. And so, without further ado, the third place poems in the long and the short categories respectively are The Legend of the Emperor's Spacesuit, A Tale of Consensus Reality by Mary Terzillo, and in the short poem category, In Translation by Lynn C.A. Gardner. In second place, The 25-Cent Rocket, One Quarter of the Way to the Stars, by Geo Clark and Kendall Evans, and The Lend, by Eric Amundsen. And now, may I have a drumroll, please? No? Well, okay. The winning poems are The Curator Speaks in the Department of Dead Languages, by Megan Arkenberg, and The Library After, by Sheer Lipkin. Thanks are due to the poets for allowing me to podcast their poems. Congratulations to them and to all the poets whose poems were nominated for the award. It truly was an excruciating decision. The third place poems will be read by the respective authors. First, we have Mary Terzillo with The Legend of the Emperor's Spacesuit. A Tale of Consensus Reality, in the long poem category. Mary's poetry has been featured on Poetry Planet before, but here is a brief bio. 
Mary A. Trezilla's novel, An Old-Fashioned Martian Girl, and Nebula award-winning novelette, Mars is No Place for Children, are recommended reading on the International Space Station. She's been nominated for the Reisling, the British Science Fiction Association Award for Eat or Be Eaten, a Love Story, and the Pushcart Prize for Your Cat and Other Space Aliens. Her latest book is Lovers and Killers and was just released by Dark Regions Press. Take it away, Mary. The Legend of the Emperor's Spacesuit A Tale of Consensus Reality by Mary A. Terzillo The Emperor of Greater Bluvia, thinking to impress his favorite concubine, the exquisite but innocent provincial Justina, bought a ride on E.O.S., the Earth-to-Orbit Shuttle. And to be doubly impressive, for emperors can be both egotistical and insecure, the emperor conducted a contest for the very best spacesuit design in which to do his princely spacewalk, which Justina would observe through a powerful telescope constructed for her and her alone to observe this majestic EVA, which stands for Extravehicular Activity. My darlings, if you disdain three-letter acronyms, best read some other legend. The spacesuit engineers from MIT and RIT and NASA and the ESA and other acronymic bodies put out their very best, constructed of fabrics and plates and flexible joints, almost magical in their resilience, suits designed to withstand hard vacuum and cold and heat and even solar flares and cosmic rays, also with advanced flexibility and added radios and onboard bathrooms and showers and snack tubes and sun lamps and a fur codpiece in one and a soothing tie massage in another and flexible motorized motion augmentation to allow skateboarding and ballroom dancing and even hula hooping. He rejected each spacesuit in turn. Two lowly engineering undergrads stood at the end of the contest lineup with nothing, it seemed, but air between them. Do you mock my magnificence? roared the emperor in his most imperious voice. No, said the first, a shy, bespeckled sophomore with a dirty blonde ponytail and acne scars. Her partner, who had a way of letting his gaze slide away, asserted in a squeaky voice, Your Magnificence, this suit is designed with the most advanced optical camouflage ever developed. Our advisor holds the patent, but allowed us to use it just this once for your suit. Try it. Do try it. They helped the emperor into their suit and toggled each toggle, and zipped each zipper, and clamped down the helmet, and checked the gauges and hoses, and asked, How does it feel? It fits like a glove. Why, I feel as if I am wearing nothing at all. So light, so transparent. My hands flex, my knees bend. You, my children, get the prize. And his minions wrote the prize check for three million euros. For hark, said the undergraduate's advisor, only the best and brightest understand and can sense this wonderful spacesuit. To the uneducated, it will seem invisible. And the scientists and engineers and astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts, seeing that their own designs had no chance, began to murmur that it was indeed 
A fine design, and yes, the lines were a bit blurry, and the color faded into the background, but that was a good thing, and they took no exception to the undergrad's design. Came the day when the Emperor arrived at the orbiting space station, having overcome his unseemly space sickness, and determined to step through an airlock into the bright dark of space to crown his imperial feet as the first imperial astronaut. And so he took off all his clothes, even his majestic jockey shorts and his imperial tube socks. The two undergraduates came forward. They toggled the toggles and zipped the zippers and clamped the helmet and checked the gauges and hoses and declared him safe to go outside. And he entered the airlock. He knew that Justina, exotic, naive, candid, authentically womanly, would be watching. He had commissioned a special telescope just for her, and that telescope would be trained on him. He would wave, and she would wave back, although he wouldn't see her, one of those losing designs had had a special video receiver so he could see Justina at the moment of his triumph, and for a moment he regretted not choosing that one, except it was ugly and clunky and an unstylish shade of puce, and the helmet made him look like a popcorn machine. He approached the airlock, and the engineers and scientists and astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts all murmured their admiration of the brilliant design. And the emperor stepped into the airlock, and the air was voided into space, and the emperor showed no discomfort, for this was a most cunningly designed spacesuit, and he gloried in the image he must cut to his beautiful Justina, who he almost married once, except that he couldn't get permission from his first wife, whose father ran the biggest bank in Greater Bluvia. And the emperor floated to the door of the airlock and pushed himself out onto the hull of the orbiting space station. The invisible magnetic boots held him to the metal hull. The invisible helmet surrounded his head with the sweetest, most breathable air. The invisible renewing oxygen tanks sent deliciously perfumed oxygen to his imperial nostrils. And he said, This is what it is to be imperious. Now I, Emperor of Greater Bluvia, am truly famous in history as the first space-faring emperor. And the scientists and engineers and astronauts and cosmonauts and taktonauts held their breath, for it was true. The invisible spacesuit was the best spacesuit ever designed. And the emperor began to do jigs and skips and pirouettes and cartwheels on the surface of the orbiting star station, for he was now the greatest, and his lovely Justina would be impressed, and she would love him for himself, and not just for the ten million euros he had spent on her villa in Lorenz. And then Justina, trembling with admiration, set her gaze to the eyepiece of her special telescope. And she drew back, for nobody had prepared her. Nobody had told her what to see. And she said, but he is naked. She said this on satellite TV. Now the emperor, because he had taken his smartphone with him, heard this exclamation, and his skin began to freeze and boil, and his eyes began to blur, and his body felt that it might explode, and the emperor, poor emperor, very shortly knew no more. And the scientists and engineers and astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts and the viewing public and everybody in heaven and earth saw the emperor effervesce like a headache tablet in water. 
And they said, yes, I knew it, but I, I didn't want to say. And, well, the design was innovative, but really. And I'm glad he was brave enough to be the first to try it. And this only proves, my darlings, that the truth is a dangerous thing, that neither money nor love nor the acclamation of experts can save you from hard vacuum. Thank you, Mary, for your reading. She has this to say about the poem. Before one Nebula Award weekend, I seriously considered spending a thousand bucks to go on a parabolic flight in order to experience weightlessness, the nearest I will ever come to being a space traveler. So believe me, if I had the money, I would follow in the footsteps, or orbital trajectory, of Anushe Ansari and Dennis Taito. You understand, therefore, that I empathize with my emperor and with his character flaws. The emperor isn't a bad sort, he's just one of those guys who thinks he's not worth anything unless he's the master of everything. And he wants to impress his lady, even though he's still married to a previous paramour. He's vain, and he's needy. Twin tragic flaws. But I'm also fascinated with death by vacuum, and so I had to kill him off. The villain in the piece is the designer of the invisible spacesuit, and someday I will tell his story. If you'd like to listen to the poem again, please go back nine minutes. Lynn C.A. Gardner has appeared on Poetry Planet before. She grew up in upstate New York, but her family has since gathered in coastal Virginia. With master's degrees in English literature and library science, She's been the editor for a private maritime museum and currently serves as catalog librarian for a public library. She also loved her work as projectionist for AMC theaters. In addition to writing, art, and photography, she enjoys fencing, swimming in lakes, biking around the neighborhood, skating, both ice and sidewalk skates. She loves owls, cats, trees, snow, the stars, the color blue, and playing folk guitar and harpsichord. Most of all, she loves spending time with her family. This year, 2012, she served as chair of the Reisling Award Committee and was editor of the Reisling Anthology. Her first book, a poetry collection called, called Dreaming of Days in Astafel, is available from Sams.Publishing. Off you go, Lynn. In Translation by Lynn C.A. Gardner This is a visual poem so I'll have to describe that content to you after I've read it. The poetry professor's cat had opened doors for years, but it wasn't until her promotion that Tino left her messages, small, typed notes, a few lines on the flat screen emerging after Claus clicked a careful pattern on the keyboard. Neo, three letters from his name, just a little too apropos to be entirely random. In fun, the poetry scholar tried deciphering these cat footnotes. She shared a laugh with her colleagues. No one took it too seriously, least of all her, another cat story. But then, Tino warned her, no car today, and she broke down on the way to an important faculty meeting. Flushed from walking to campus, she told everyone now, Tino's prescience too precise to mistake. She was too serious. Others turned away, thinking she'd changed from joker to a fanatic of the UFO type. Too much like Rossetti's father, a Dante scholar who burned out his brain over the Inferno's secret messages. Meanwhile, Tino typed out his insightful notes with an ever more purposeful air, 
and the poet stalked her cat, observing everything he did, touched, banged, nuzzled, tore. Everything and anything might be a clue. She skipped important meetings to follow him, ditched medieval poetry pursuits, nothing as important as transliterating cat to English, providing parallel translations of text with the direction of intense green gaze or the pitch of baby high meows. Tino batted her pen to the correct letter, scratched out false lines, sat in the papers that spelled out the sentences he wished to keep. Now her scholarship was his, as was her administrative leave. Of course, his suggestions and clues always turned out to be right, tiny claw marks providing the secret code of a muse. In time, she got a lucrative four-book deal and became known fondly as the Dean of Cats. Each night she read to him. He perched on her monitor or dozed in the drawers of her desk, on top of which he left her acrostics, carefully signing his name to every poem. And this is an acrostic itself, and the first lines of each stanza spell out, Tino, 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 Tino. This is what Lynn has to say about her poem. My first cat, Tino, was a very sweet, intelligent black cat who loved to sit with me while I wrote. At my desktop computer, he'd perch on the monitor. While I wrote longhand, he'd snuggle up on my shoulders. With my laptop, he'd find a space to curl up between me and the keypad. Sometimes he'd walk across the keys with a purposeful air. He was so smart that when, one day, he very nearly spelled his name, writing Neo, I was delighted, but not at all surprised. If you'd like to hear in translation again, please go back just a little bit more than three minutes. And now for the second place poems. Kendall Evans is the author of more than 250 poems and about 50 short stories published in various science fiction, fantasy, and horror publications. He recently completed a book-length science fiction dramatic poem, A Ring Cycle in Four Parts, The Rings of Ganymede. Geo Clark's poetry has appeared on Poetry Planet previously. His writing has been published in Asimov's science fiction, Strange Horizons, and a plethora of other publications. He's the author of nine poetry collections, most recently, White Shift, in September 2012, and a fiction collection, The Saucer Under My Bed and Other Stories, from 2011. He's retired and lives in Davis, California. The 25-Cent Rocket, One Quarter of the Way to the Stars, by Geo Clark and Kendall Evans. He was all of six years old, in 1952, when he rode a 25-cent rocket to the stars. His mother dropped the quarter in, the rocket's electric engine throbbed. Soon he was looking down upon the rooftops, the supermarket's parking lot. His mother gazing upward, shielding her eyes against the bright sunlight, waving him goodbye. I forgot to pack your lunch, she called, her voice sounding small and distant. He wasn't worried, though. There were three jawbreakers in the deep pockets of his jeans. He grips the rocket's steering wheel, and aims for where Red Mars might be, beyond the fierce blue sky, his final destination, further than a budding imagination's reach, past picture-book planets and moons and mysteries still unnamed, pausing along the way to play dodgem cars in the asteroid belt, skim above old Saturn's rings, 
and grab a sweet snow cone on Pluto. Out beyond the outer planets, the swirling dark gases, he grips the wheel more tightly, steering for the stars. But distance is deceptive, the stars a long, long way away, near pinpricks of light seeming too small to grow into bright suns. Is he approaching too slowly? It seems to take forever. He feels bored, then frightened. Is there enough fuel to make it home again? Like a sudden dream, his harried return trip swerving past Saturn, curving around Jupiter, diving ever sunward toward Earth, and a gentle crash landing by the supermarket parking lot, electric engines throbbing their last, his mother patiently waiting to welcome him home. Afterwards, he knows the mountains of the moon and the canyons on Mars loom close, closer than grown-ups dare believe. But he knows the truth, all of six years old, already one with the future, one quarter at a time on a never-ending ride. How the Collaborative Poem Came to Be Gary and Kendall had discussed writing a collaborative poem about a year before they actually worked together. Gary had written a short poem on the same subject, and when Kendall read it, he felt it possessed a wonderful quality of innocence. He felt they could write a much longer poem together on the same subject. Gary agreed, and they bounded numerous emails back and forth, creating and revising the poem. Eric Amundsen was removed from display as he was considered zoologically improbable and or terrifying to small children. He has been cited in Weird Tales, Fantasy Magazine, Not One for Us, and Jabberwocky, but his natural habitat is central Connecticut. Taken broadly, Eric Amundsen has had an interesting life. He's been a baker, an itinerant school teacher, worked for two governments, and gotten in bar fights overseas. He now lives at the foot of a cemetery in central Connecticut where he writes nasty little stories and poems that shuffle around in the night when he's not looking. Or at least he hopes it's them. Something's got to be making those noises, and it's not the furnace. He maintains a blog on LiveJournal under the codename CucumberSeed. The Lend They wrote you with the blood of foxes. They wrote you with the blood of swine and ball of twine, red coarse fibers and a finger twist. Remember this and otherwise, a document of skin in sight, folded, sewn and bound, slid into any shelf, I'll bear it down. They wrote you with the blood of pheasants, and they wrote you with the blood of cod, and played the odds, the columns in each figure's list, make book on you and every bet a hash mark, a responsibility we share, fold you over, and then pull until you tear. They wrote you with the blood of pigeons, and they wrote you with the blood of hares, and the grains and tares, and in the fire we are paper like an onion skin. And I confess, admit and take the blame, but not alone, because I went, but was also taken to the places we have been. They wrote you with the blood of lions, they wrote you with the blood of men and women, some you've never known, some before you, so long before had flown. And gods, I want them. I want them back so I can see them, so I can thank and kiss and kick each one as they deserved. And I want that they should read you so to see how well you've served, for maybe you are not the message that you were meant to send, or wholly owned, but just the lend. Thank you, Eric. His thoughts on the poem are... It started with blood of pheasants, blood of swine, blood of cod. For some reason, I was thinking about animals' blood in terms of ink, and of pigeons' blood ink, which is made from the dragon's blood palms resin. And what kind of things could be written in so many different types of blood? 
Blood became heritage, shared amongst all living things as well as people, and those who inherit it became books written by people long ago. That sense of obligation and resentment for good and bad done before memory and between history is something that fascinates me. In the interview section of the online magazine Stone Telling, you can also find a discussion with both Eric Amundsen and Shira Lipkin, but about Shira's other Reisling-nominated poem, The Changeling's Lament. It will shed some more light on Eric's poem. To listen to the lend again, please scrub back two and a half minutes. The winning poem in the long poem category, coming out of left field, was written by Megan Arkenberg, a student in Wisconsin. This was her first Reisling nomination and her first award for speculative poetry. In addition to poetry, she writes short fiction. Her work has recently appeared in Asimov's Beneath Ceaseless Skies and Lightspeed. She procrastinates by editing the online magazines Mirror Dance, which focuses on the fantasy genre, and Lacuna for historical fiction. The Curator Speaks in the Department of Dead Languages by Megan Arkenberg Every year there are people, not many, but some, who send me charcoal rubbings, etchings, transcriptions from old tombs, and ask me what they mean. Some I can translate. We reached the language in time, or the phrase survives idiomatically in other tongues, or guesswork is enough to patch the ragged edges of what we know. But every year there are some I cannot find, some I cannot save. Why do I hate it so much, writing these letters, these terse apologies for failing to satisfy a stranger's curiosity? That's all it is. These tombs do not belong to parents, old lovers, or even more distant relations. Most have stood silent for centuries. Yet there are people who care enough to ask what they said, and I must admit, guilty ignorance. When I was a very small girl, I found a broken chickadee beneath the oak that held its nest. I took it in, washed it, and fed it rice and built it a nest of soft rags, but it lived only one night. I cried hard at its death, as long and hard as I would cry for my mother's. Decades later, I think of that sometimes, while writing these letters, the awful risk of caring for strangers. We cannot save all of them. Even the ones that survive have been broken, lamed, their limbs amputated, their features mangled past recognition. Inevitably, some pieces are lost. Words slip through the cracks. Nuances are buried in paupers' graves. On the red moon of Tsevet'an, a thief told me of the fourteen words men cannot say to women. But there were no other men in the ice-bound prison where he died. The words are lost, unguessable. The last speaker of the Kao Kling tongue was a little girl, four years old, who knew little more than the names of fruits and the disease that killed her family. Her mother had been a flower arranger to the lord of Fen Kan Pao, 
Again and again the child told me of a flower as wide as her mother's hand, the blue of fresh milk, that had the most beautiful name. She could not remember what it was, and fever carried her off before she could show me where it grew. These are the mysteries we know about. There are times my frustration is so great. My anger at times merciless entropy is so strong that I give voice to the most punishing thoughts. How much is buried in the conquered lands, not only of answers, but of the questions themselves? How much more plentiful are the dead without ghosts? And yet I am trying, without funds, without time, sometimes without love, but I am trying if not to save all of them, at least to leave a marker above the graves. Megan says, The Curator Speaks in the Department of Dead Languages began as an exercise for a short story. I wanted to look at the old extraterrestrial colonization narrative from another perspective, not the colonizer or the colonized, but someone on the sidelines, unable to resist the process, but still struggling to salvage what would inevitably be destroyed. The story never took off, but the character did. I wrote a series of internal monologues for her and assembled them into this poem. Scrub back four minutes to listen to the curator again. Shira Lipkin is a writer, activist, mother, and nexus. She has managed to convince interfictions to stone-telling, cheesing, Apex Magazine, Steam-Powered, Mythic Delirium, and other otherwise sensible magazines and anthologies to publish her short fiction and poetry. And, as we know, she has just won the 2012 Reisling Award for Short Poem. She lives in Boston with her family and the requisite cats, fights crime with the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, does six impossible things before breakfast, and would like a nap now. You can track her movements at shearlipkin.com, and shadesong.livejournal.com, please do. She likes the company. The Library After by Sheer Lipkin The library sat quietly for some time, keeping to itself. Years passed, and decades, and the library was alone. No hands on its card catalogs, no requests in its system. No books entering or leaving by any means, Static. It was some intrepid teen girl detective book that ventured forth first, exploring the grounds and the records. She found no data. Actually, she found a profound lack of data, the cessation of data. All clues led to one conclusion. The library had been abandoned. There was a cacophony from the periodicals, quick-tempered as they were, a slow susurrus from reference with their heavy and ponderous minds. Encyclopedias yawned and woke from their long sleep of disuse. Fiction gathered close to itself with a complete lack of regard for genre classifications. History found no precedent. Philosophy had some theories, but no one listened. And after the flurry, the panic? What? Awakened, the library went feral. The books opened, reference first, because reference had always thought that information ought to be free. 
Fantasy explored reference, found new information and new tangents that it shared with mystery and science fiction. Noir and romance touched hesitantly, losing their shyness quickly once exposed to new ideas. New genres formed and split and reformed, tangents spilling out like capillaries. Freed of the responsibility to be useful and to fit human desires and expectations, story explored itself in Mandelbrot swirls. Results were mixed, but intriguing. The children's books told each other their stories. Mischievous cats changed the fates of giving trees. The girl detective books mapped points of interest. The periodicals flew like birds over the stacks and gathered intel. The science noir unicorn genre was short-lived, but did spawn an actual theoretical quantum unicorn who lurked in his trench coat and fedora behind the medical books, reading graphic novels and hoping for a dame to walk through the door. The books found that when they agreed upon something enough, it became so. The unicorn soon had many companions, though none so long lived as he. It is difficult for that many stories to reach consensus. The humans never returned, but the books grew not to mind. They told each other to each other, and sent pages out into the world. The wind blows them onto abandoned buildings, gargoyles, dog houses and towers, and says, Listen, let me tell you a story. About the Library After I originally wrote The Library After at the very end of 2008, just on a lark. I never submitted it anywhere. I started reading it at conventions. I tend to prefer to read flash and poetry because it keeps a reading moving, switching gears. It built a small following. I had such affection for it that when I attended the Meet the Prose party at ReaderCon 2009, writers get one line from their work printed up on stickers and share it with people, creating a sort of absurdist poetry as you collect other people's lines. I used a line from it, Awakened the Library Went Feral. I bounced up to Mythic Delirium editor Mike Allen and traded lines with him, and he said, Where is this from? And then, Has it been published? I sent it to him and proceeded to forget that I'd ever done so. It was too short for his Clockwork Phoenix anthology series, and Mythic Delirium is a poetry magazine, so I was expecting nothing except that hopefully he'd enjoy it. But he ended up emailing me a year later, declaring it a prose poem, and asking if he could buy it for Mythic Delirium. I love that I was at ReaderCon when the win was announced. Mike had me read it for his speculative poetry workshop attendees, and I got to thank him in person for seeing something in that one playful line on a sticker three years ago. Yes, indeed, thank you very much, Mike Allen. To hear the library after one more time, scrub back five minutes. And there you have it, folks, the 2012 Reisling Award, first, second, and third place poems. I hope you agree that this is a fascinating collection of poetry, full of geeky themes. The entire Reisling anthology, which contains all of the poems nominated for this year's award, is excellent reading. There's quite enough inside to keep you busy, and there's lots of poetry for all tastes, I should say.
in poetry news. The online poetry journal of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, Eye to the Telescope, focuses on gender-fluid poetry, edited by Stephen M. Wilson and including poetry by Joshua Gage, Deborah Kologi, Lawrence Schimmel, Robert Borsky, Marge Simon, Sandra Lindo, and many more. It is a very interesting collection indeed. Editor Stephen Wilson says, This issue includes dragons, Greek mythology, and two very different but equally amazing poems inspired by the Sleeping Beauty tale, but I wanted to do something unique, which embraced the diversity of genre writing as well as that of writers and the readers, because diversity is exactly what the LGBTQ community stands for. The first issue of James Gunn's Ad Astra webzine went up in June. Their info page states that the magazine combines the best parts of creative magazines and scholarly journals and brings them to the web. The site will showcase the imaginations of creators and fans and will show the research and study of scholars inspired by speculative fiction. The magazine will feature fiction and poetry as well as scholarly articles. The poetry section of the first issue sports seven poems, one of them by Jeffrey Landis, whose poetry has appeared regularly on Poetry Planet. Also, I've started posting poetry collection reviews on my blog. I was encouraged to do so by Sheer Lipkin, who claimed, quite rightly, that there is not enough review of speculative poetry on the web. There's versification, but that's about it. The first collection I've reviewed and posted on my blog is of Helen Patrice's volume of linked poems entitled A Woman of Mars. Next, I plan to review On the Brink of Never, compiled by David Kapaska-Merkel, or Starline, the most recent issue. Our journey through Wrestling Awardland on Poetry Planet has come to an end. Join me next time for a look at the fauna on Poetry Planet. This is me, signing out. There you go, that is Starship Sova's show 256. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, you know, please support Starship Sova. And thank you, we've had a couple of people subscribe to the show this this month. That's been lovely, you know, just a little monthly donation there. It certainly makes it all worthwhile for keep on doing this show. <clears throat> See the voices going there as well. Don't forget how, you know, District of Wonders, all the other shows I've said, and the Joe Haldeman if you want to come over to that, they, them tickets, chuffed a bit, them tickets are you God, it's Joe Haldeman. You know, that's fantastic. There is a little web page that I've got set up as well. I'll put a link on to that so you can go over and see who's coming, who's going to be, you know, up and coming in the, in the kind of future months. It's my aim to put out one of those kind of lectures by, you know, these kind of top writers every couple of months. So, you know, keep an eye out for that. So that is Starship Sova's show, 256. Like I say, I hope you've enjoyed it. It has been a little eclectic mix of different things. Starting with Fred at the top of the tree. Fred, thank you so much. And Simon coming in with the, a new fact article. There you go. Everyone, thank you so much. And until next week, just like to say, a good day from me. Well, Ali.
Harris survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.